Noise Nation. Hi, Kevin. Hello to you on this absolutely beautiful day. There are a few hospital employees that greet me with that every day. Always makes me smile. One of the best SpongeBob episodes ever. Well, we have an amazing episode for you today here on Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. Part one of a Blue Devil Bogo, a Duke dynamic duo of palatial proportions, Dr. Andy Schwartz, the fellow, followed by a second episode I will be releasing shortly, a conversation with his fellowship director and force of nature, Dr. Michael Bolognese. Just incredible and inspiring conversations both. You're certainly going to want to hang around for that. Well, I thought I had a win-win of a joke in the hospital cafeteria line the other day. The nurse in front of me dutifully opened her styrofoam lunch container so the cashier could make sure she hadn't stuffed six ribeyes in there and was getting charged for a side of bacon. I always feel a little defensive when it's time for the big reveal. I told her just one day I'd like to see someone put a few spring snakes in that container and troll the cashier with a little surprise entree. I thought it was hilarious. She thought it was hilarious. Frankly, America thought it was hilarious, but the cashier, judging by her facial expression, clearly did not. Now, in hindsight, that was the exit I should have gotten off on right there. There was gas, food, clean restrooms, but no, I had to keep driving thinking maybe she just needs some context. So I go into the history of the spring snake and take her back to that infamous can of peanut brittle that would launch a snake into low orbit when the unsuspecting victim cracked it open. Did it work? Of course not. She muttered something. I am convinced she put the cuss in customer service. And frankly, that was on me. I knew better. Quit while you're behind. Or should I have quit quietly? I've been reading about this dubious concept made famous from a TikTok post. It doesn't actually involve quitting, apparently. It's a response to quote-unquote hustle culture. Employees are quitting going above and beyond and declining to do tasks they are not being paid for. That's a new thing? Well, let's explore that for a second. One of my favorite police shows is Bosch on Amazon. I just finished binging Bosch Legacy this weekend, and the advice he gave to his daughter is advice I will share with you. You have to decide what kind of cop you want to be, Mads. It's either a mission or it's just a job. So let's take some literary license and read that once more. You have to decide because it is a choice. What kind of rep do you want to be? It's either a mission or it's just a job. How you answer that changes a lot. So hold that thought. I got a phone call from my brother-in-law in in South Florida the other day who was absolutely losing his mind. Here's what happened. His mother-in-law was at home, got out of her chair and heard something snap, never good, and was now on the floor, unable to move and in agonizing pain. She called her neighbor who came right over and off to the trauma center we go to get an A1 extra articular distal femoral fracture repaired. Now, let me tell you something about her and her late husband. Former Dade County Sheriff's deputies, both as tough a lady as you will ever meet. But the pain she experienced as they had to move her out of that house was just next level. And my brother-in-law was hearing that over the phone, obviously very upsetting to them. They didn't know what was going on. They don't work in the OR. My brother-in-law doesn't even know what a femur is. They're just not used to seeing and hearing things like that. My first week 
week on the job, I remember like it was yesterday. The surgeon made an incision and the patient let out a scream that had me seriously reconsidering my career path. It was so upsetting to hear that. How much more upsetting when it's your loved one in pain? So hold that thought. Here's a story for you. A fellow rep and I years ago were reviewing an x-ray a surgeon sent over for a case the next morning. In two seconds, it was apparent to me that my colleague needed options in the hall that he currently did not have. I heard that it's late in the day, Cy. You ever heard that before? And he said something I will never forget. Well, the surgeon just asked for what I have already. If he needs something else and it's not there, then that's on him. Oh my. That story reverberates with me to this day. Well, hold that thought while we open up that word for just a second. I have been pretty obsessed with creating ambient textures on the electric guitar for some time. It involves several things. Playing slowly, articulately, it's more difficult than you think, with copious amounts of, well, Reverb. What's reverb, you ask? Here's the definition. Reverb is created when sound waves from any sound source reflect off surfaces in a room, causing a large number of reflections to reach your ears so closely together that you can't interpret them as individual delays. I have a lot of different pedals to create a lot of different things, but one pedal to create these very reflections, my absolute favorite, is my Blue Sky Pedal by Strymon. Here it is on a setting appropriately called cloud. Doesn't that just sound amazing? My wife will attest when I'm noodling around on the Strat with this pedal, I am practically unreachable. The sound is just otherworldly. Well, let's come back to this world, take that and all the other thoughts I asked you to hold and bring it all together. Is this a mission or a job? I'm asking you. I'm asking me because our answer to that takes us to quote unquote quiet quitting. We talked about my colleague who frankly couldn't be bothered to go that extra mile to secure options for a case the next day. He had quietly quit. TikTok hadn't even been invented yet, but there it was. Why was it easy for him to quit on the surgeon and ultimately the patient not go that extra mile? Because it was a job. Look, it's a subtle process. It doesn't happen overnight. Some people start out this career as missional, but then a couple of blood-curdling screams later, we get used to things and get depersonalized to it all. The patients are draped, and after a while, we really don't see them like I see my relative in Miami. Believe it or not, early in my career, when things moved just a little slower, I routinely got introduced to patients pre-op and post-op as a member of the team. It really shaped my thinking. And surgeons listening, we need you to do that for us once in a while as it really helps us keep focused. Because apart from that, it easily becomes metal and plastic, next quarter earnings, salesforce.com, inventory spreadsheets. You wake up one day and from the CEO on down to the ASR, a whole swath of people are officially working a job and a job you can easily and quietly quit on. Now, a mission, on the other hand, think about this. It's much harder to quit, right? Your mother, your grandparents, my relatives, these people deserve that and nothing less. Let's get on the soapbox. They deserve this now-tainted phrase, hustle culture, on their behalf to ensure their operative experience is perfection. Here's a real-life example. I moved heaven and earth recently to get a supersized stem in for a surgeon when he expressed that not-so-fresh feeling. 
looking at x-rays for a case coming up in short order. My wife had to pitch in. It was all hands on deck to make it happen as I was in cases when FedEx opened. And guess what? We actually ended up needing it and using it. The biggest freaking hip stem I've ever pulled out of a box. Well, that was a great day in the OR as the patient was served at the highest level, having that available. And so was the surgeon. That's some good reverb right there, right? Ambient, delicious blue sky reflections that truly echo long after the case is over. So as we get ready to talk to Dr. Schwartz, I want you to ponder that this week. Is this a job or is it a mission? I have bounced between both sides throughout my career and have pretty much landed on this. It's not about the nail. It's not about the plate. It's not about quota. It's not about inventory turns. It's not about working this gig as a job. It can't be. It's the mission of serving the people who do not deserve anyone quietly quitting on them. The patient, the surgeon charged with their care, and the facility that allows us to play a small role in that sacred exchange. Trust me on this. Make that your mission, and everything else takes care of itself. One of my favorite missions, by the way, is identifying obscure implants, and our next guest has elevated that to an art form. I was in the shower the other day thinking about what else, metal and plastic, and I remembered an obscure right medical stem that involved press fitting distally and then pushing cement through the stem for proximal fixation. The demo at AAOS at the time was extremely cool. Remember what that stem was called? I certainly didn't. A quick message to Dr. Schwartz and he literally texted me back in seconds. That's the bridge stem. How does he do that? Let's find out the answer to that and so much more. Dr. Andy Schwartz, welcome to the show, sir. Kevin, how are you? So glad to be here. I'm doing awesome, sir, and I'm really excited to have you on. So look forward to talking to you about your burgeoning career as an orthopedic surgeon. Big things are coming your way. The Young Arthroplasty Group, Metal and Plastic Identification, and Golf. But first, let's go back to Westchester, Ohio, where families grow and businesses prosper. Tell me about growing up in the Schwartz household, sir. What puts you on the path to medicine? So I'm from uh, Westchester, Ohio, which is a small town just outside of Cincinnati. Pretty typical household. Parents initially... Uh, uh, set the expectations of what I needed to do to perform in school. Eventually scaled them back as, as my own expectations exceeded theirs. Tried my very best to be a, a good athlete, but ended up being a very average one in uh, football and baseball, later in golf. I think the big unifying force in our family was always football. For years and years and years, we were devout, self-loathing Cincinnati Bengals fans. Finally, this past year, we got a fair degree of vindication when they finally made it to the Super Bowl and packed our bags and went out there and watch them lose unfortunately, but that's a big departure from my first 30 years of Washington. Indeed it is, sir. Magnum cum laude in biology at Kenyon College and NCAA varsity letters in football and golf. When does that ever happen? Well, that's a fair question. My, my life's passion, as I mentioned, is football. And I've played that since I was, I think, in third grade. Played that all the way through my senior year. Uh, with that said, though, my junior year, I dislocated my knee. I had to find something else to do as I was recovering from uh, that, that knee injury and knee surgery. You know, lo and behold, I happened upon golf and I started watching YouTube videos. And that eventually uh, became going to the driving range and trying to learn to play golf because there was a chance I wasn't going to be able to play football again. And so essentially sitting down the video camera on the Adirondack chair outside the driving range and 
hit and hit and hit and hit. So I was at least good enough to go out there and play at the D3 level. Fortunately, I was able to come back and play football too. So I played both my uh, senior year. Football remained my passion, but golf was my pleasure. I have to admit, I wish I stuck with it because we recently had a Duke golf outing. Let's just say it's been a while since I picked up my clubs. <laughs> well, when you were in peak golf, what was your best score? Uh, I was an 80s guy. I would occasionally get the upper 70s, but uh, it is both shocking and probably even more humbling how fast that number can go up when you don't swing for a while. It can get ugly. As I uh, start to transition away from medical training and back into medical practicing, I'm hoping to have a little more time to be able to take some lessons and get back on the course more reliably. If I could just score the balls that I find in the woods to lower my <laughs> overall score, I think I'd be a scratch golfer. <laughs> yes, uh, I think that's a separate game is uh, how many balls go in and how many balls come out. They don't have to be yours. They just have to be balls. Yeah, that's right. Onward to Albert Einstein College, home of a lot of big names in our space, by the way. Enjoy your time there? Yeah, I did. It was good to uh, spend some time in New York City. I really enjoyed my four years there. I have this have to say, being from small town Ohio, I was not a great New Yorker. While it was fun, I didn't want to be, be forever. Definitely don't miss it. But uh, it was a good time and got to meet a lot of great people. Orthopedic residency at Emory. What was your experience like at that great institution? My time at Emory was some of the best five years of my life. First of all, as hard as we worked and great training as we got, the best part about it was the folks I made some friends there that I'm just lucky to have met anywhere at all, let alone in residency training. Uh, they got me through it, and we had an absolute blast together. In fact, a good portion of them were at my wedding a few months ago, and one of them even officiated the wedding. So some really special friends there. But as far as training goes, I'm grateful for everyone at Emory, but especially the arthroplasty folks. Jim Robertson, who has been around for all eternity and has seen the lows, highs, lows, and highs again of arthroplasty. And then Greg Ahrens, who is a uh, Harvard disciple who is about as regimented as they come and will literally do the same knee replacement no matter what the pre-op x-ray is every single time. And it is just mind-blowing how good he is. And then two of the younger folks who were special mentors to me, Tom Bradbury, who is about as good of a surgical educator and friend as you can find, and George Guild, who is a just absolute brilliant mind in building a practice and has taught me a lot about what I need to do in my first few years as I head to the University of Iowa in the next couple of years. I think everyone can speak fondly of their mentors in residency, but I'm just so proud and happy to have worked with those guys. The Bubba and Buana Award for Outstanding PGY2 of the Year, Thomas Moore Senior Mentorship Award for Outstanding Chief Resident. Your CV just speaks of excellence at whatever you seem to put your hands to. You spoke to earlier about just exceeding your own parents' expectations. What drives you to aim high in everything you do? Well, thank you for saying that. You know, those awards are nice, but they really represent exactly what I want, which is, you know, respect for your peers. Those are both awards are voted on by your co-residents and it means a lot to have their vote of approval. Um, as far as aiming high, I don't know that I necessarily aim high. I just want to do the best that I can in uh, in any situation. And and for me, that means doing better today than I did yesterday. And while that's not always possible, I think it's the thought and effort that counts, which makes the trend continue upward in the long haul. And that's more just part of maternal and paternal gifts that I got from my parents. I mean, they just exceeded in their own lives and were role models in doing so for my life. So I think it's just 
continue to try to do better. A lot of trauma sprinkled throughout your education. You still enjoy putting broken things back together or is now recon the one and only? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. Uh, I, I hope to do almost exclusively recon, but I think trauma is a part of every orthopedist's life, and it should be, because as we go into these subspecialties of orthopedics, they're all based in the principles that we learned in trauma, getting stable phys- fixation, uh, being friendly to the soft tissues, watching your outcomes closely. I think any orthopedist with who loves this job as much as I do will always love trauma despite patients' best efforts sometimes. Speaking of recon, most notably a recon fellowship, we land in Durham, North Carolina, where you're finishing up here. The foodie capital of North Carolina, Dame's Chicken and Waffles, is probably one of my favorite dishes on the planet. Duke University for your recon fellowship. Why Duke? Well, uh, number one, you mentioned the food. The food here is unbelievable. The barbecue is to die for. Chicken and waffles, obviously, is uh, something I try my best to avoid, but occasionally indulge. And even some of the less Southern food styles, uh, even for my wife's birthday recently, went to a, a restaurant in downtown Durham called M Sushi. And I mean, it was really some of the best I've ever had. Uh, I mean, I'm just amazed. It, it is a great place to eat. But uh, beyond the food, my experience here has just been absolutely incredible. It's everything I've ever hoped it would be. The, the mentorship here is unparalleled. My fellowship mentor is Mike Bolognese. And he seems to be a guy who lives outside of the 24-hour-a-day clock. I mean, he's an exceptional surgeon. His surgical weight lift is longer than anyone I've ever seen. He's a great clinician and a great mentor and a teacher inside the hospital. Um, he was a president of AUKUS and an active member of both hip and knee societies. He's probably the most desired speaker at every conference on every weekend. But despite that, he's an incredible family man. He's a great friend to a lot of people outside of medicine, and he's just a blast to be around. I don't, I don't know that you could have a better supporter and mentor than him, but it doesn't just stop there. The, the rest of the folks at the Duke main campus, Torsten Seiler, Bill Geronic, Sam Wellman, and David Terrian, just incredibly gifted at what they do. They each bring something unique to the table over there at the main campus, and I just have a laundry list of things each of them have taught me that I'm grateful to be able to put onto one list for my own practice. And then over at Duke Regional Campus, Scott Kelly and Red Hallows are big proponents of a relatively uncommon approach to total hip replacement called ABMS, or anterior-based muscle sparing, which I initially wasn't sure so much about, but now plan to do in my practice. And I think it's excellent because it still satisfies the patient desire for an anterior hip replacement and offers the same clinical benefits that we all hope to achieve. It makes your decision a little bit lateral unless you stay away from uh, people's large guts and suboptimal skin on the front of the thigh. I just feel like I've had an incredible breadth and depth to a pretty unique arthroplasty practice here at Duke. I've enjoyed every bit of it. You know, it's been such an honor and a privilege to cover some cases over there. It kind of freaked me out the other day when you said my name showed up on a surgery record of one of the totals there. Yeah, it's uh, it's, a, it's a neat place. And it was funny to see your name show up. I said, oh, wow, I know that guy. I got to send him a text because there's obviously a lot of cases going on there. And some of them are a good bit of them are routine, of course. But but being a tertiary referral center, but I would say a unique one in, the, in, in its breadth of its reach throughout the state and really some of the East Coast, you see some really, really unusual cases that happen to do. Any case that really jumps off the page at you uh, that you were involved in? Oh, boy. Well, when I think about the word disasterplasty, I'm immediately struck by a case in its sheer number of disastrous elements of sadness. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, by that I mean a chronically fractured, chronically polymicrobially infected proximal femoral replacement in a 40-year-old patient. I mean, wow, where do you begin? Right. Obviously, she bounced around a number of orthopedic practices before making it to ours, but she ended up in the right place. You know, using a protocol I've heard described as the quote-unquote megaspacer, which obviously is just uniquely enviable for orthopedists. It was written up by the University of Arkansas. Took the old components out. We placed a striker hip knee ankle fusion nail and made it with antibiotic loaded cement to a link proximal femoral body so that happened to happen to fit together. And then we coated the whole darn thing in antibiotic cement. After curing her infection, which was no small task, we took her back and placed an acetabular component and then did a total femur, but left her disarticulated to allow the components to grow in, knowing that we need to constrain her and want to avoid aseptic loosening. So finally, surgery number three was to put her together. And uh, her course before she came to us was just a cautionary tale on how quickly arthroplasty can go bad. And our three-surgery treatment was a similar expose on how hard it can be to fix it. Wow. It's just unbelievable. Other cases that come to mind that haunt me a little bit are the, really the ones where I found myself humbled by steps I never foresaw as time-consuming or challenging. Something even as simple as getting a pinnacle-constrained line around the shell immediately comes to mind. Um, but... You know, I definitely want to give a, an overarching case shout out to a handful of top revision cases that I've done with my co-fellows, Hayden Joseph and Tim Kahn, as we really don't get to scrub enough cases with our friends. And it's been a blast taking those cases down with them together. It's been just so much fun. A dear surgeon friend of mine said, there's nothing as simple nor as difficult as a routine hardware removal. <laughs> it's very true, oh, isn't it? Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm, I'm getting nauseous. Yes, just just it's taking so something out. What's your favorite case to do? Well, that's a fair question. I'm, I'm a righty who loves hip replacements, and I prefer broaching from below the femur. So a primary anterior left double hip replacement is about as good as it comes for me. But in throwing my own comfort to the wind, I'm definitely a sucker for a good hip revision. Orthopedic reconstruction is a somewhat mature market, Dr. Schwartz. Any tools in the toolbox we don't have yet that you'd like to see? Well, you mean aside from the tool that sees into the future and stops us before we're about to make the wrong maneuver in the OR? Aside from that one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In all seriousness, I'm so lucky to come into this job with the just absolute litany of brilliant innovators in this field already. And they've solved many of the common problems that I may never actually encounter anymore. Sure. Uh, the recent tools that I'm most excited about as a uh, surgeon desperately interested in revision hip surgery are the implant-specific extraction blades. Uh, but on the flip side, the pelvis has a ridiculously complex geometry that becomes increasingly confusing via bone loss and bone overgrowth where primary or revision sockets are being removed. I sometimes wonder how useful the pre-op CT scan is as things seem to change dramatically in the implant and soft tissue removal process. Right. You know, the O-arm is an incredible tool in the spine world, and I'd love to come up with a way to reliably adopt it to the revision hip world. Intra-op spot x-rays may not tell the full story depending on the exact projection you might get. Sure. Three-dimensional point-of-tail analysis would remove some of the guesswork on augmentation options, cage needs, cup size, and screw trajectory. And frankly, it's an important issue because the stakes are so high to setting a revision or, dare I say, re-revision surgery. But it's important to get it right. And I think it'd be neat to be able to visualize our field in 3D. You know, when I first started in this business, the fully porous coated solution type stem was the go-to for so many in these cases. What's your go-to now? What are you going to ask for as your plan A? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, listening to some of the pre- your previous podcasts, like the one with Dr. Koprowski, I mean... We really have 
fixed some of the crazy problems a long time ago with stems like that. But they've created some of their own. And frankly, I'm just now two days removed from uh, taking out a broken solution stem. And those are a difficult problem to fix. Right. Uh, but nowadays, when I'm revising a femur, I think I could go either way with some of the bi-body modular stems that seem to do really well and are also fairly easy to use in the operating room. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's an important role for some of the, the monoblock single-piece tapered and fluted stems. But the bottom line is it seems like tapered and fluted stems going down into the diaphysis are real difference makers for tough problems on the femur side. What's your threshold for pulling out a dual mobility in a hip revision? Good question. And I, I don't know that answer yet. Initially, you know, biomechanically, it makes a tremendous amount of stems. And I look at it and I say, wow. What a great solution to a tough problem. But I think there's probably a lot of times in history where great solutions to tough problems haven't worked out quite so well. Um, and I'm a little miffed by some of the early reports of corrosion between the polished shell and the acetabular component, because I think we have shown time and again that metal-metal articulations don't do so hot. Right. So I'm intrigued by some of these options with the, the monoblock dual mobility component or the non-cobalt chrome dual mobility options. There's certainly a role. I think it's both surgical and patient-driven. Is the patient a a risk for dislocation? And taking someone back for dislocation is is not inconsequential. I don't know that I have the perfect answer. And I think as a specialty, we need to try to find that answer. Um, It's more right now, more of some guesswork. But I do think there's an important role for it. You brought up something that's really fascinating to me just historically as we look back on implant design of of how many times that we tried to solve one problem. And in that process, well-meaning, of course, we created two more problems. (laughs) For an implant nerd like myself, reading these, you know, the the history of arthroplasty and the earliest papers, you know, the ones that are scanned in, like, oh, look at this great idea. And I'm like, wow, it really was a great idea to fix a problem. And then Ten years later, the papers are the easier to read. They're not scanned in. They were written on the computer, but it goes to show you, oh, that wasn't such a good idea. And as you said, they really were well-meaning. I mean, you know, of course, we look back now and uh, say, well, that wasn't a good idea. But the people who came up with those ideas never thought that. And the people who adopted them thought, thought they were the greatest ideas ever done. Uh, so uh, just a cautionary tale of trying to be avoid being the first or the last adopt technology. Well, I look forward to ask you some more implant nerd stuff that you've got going on. But first, I wanted to ask you about your membership in the Young Arthroplasty Group. I've heard about that throughout my career. Tell us about it. Absolutely. Uh, It's a group within AUKUS that is comprised exclusively of joint surgeons in their first five years of practice. Now, the first five years are equal parts humbling and exciting. It can be a little lonely thinking you're going through the process alone. This is an awesome group that allows us to put our heads together and realize we are not, in fact, alone. And I've learned quite a bit from this group, too, which is great. It's like absorbing little bits and pieces of of their fellowship to do mini fellowships every time I have an unusual case come up. So I've met some great friends, but I've also learned a lot. It's a pretty neat crew and a nice stepping stone to get involved more deeply in AUKUS. I really enjoyed meeting you face-to-face at the inaugural Foundation for Physician Advancement. It was so funny when I went to the table of fellows for a little Device Nation soundbite. Everybody collectively pointed to you as the unofficial corporate spokesman. Uh, so how did that happen? Well, that's a good question. You know, first of all, that meeting was awesome. But uh, second of all, uh, I'm glad they elected me. Uh, I don't know if that means I talk too much or if I just like talking to people. <laughs> 
Uh, But I'm I'm glad they picked me because it was good to get to talk to you. I was so inspired at that meeting, and it sounds like you were too. Uh, Any thoughts? It was great. It was a meeting talking about the business aspects that were really particular to joint replacement. It's important on a number of different levels. Number one, we are so appropriately focused on honing our surgical skill and our critical acumen because it, it is a lot to absorb, even in just the five years of residency and one year of fellowship. And I know that learning will continue going on into practice. But with that said, we don't really learn so much about the business aspects of it. And sure. the point that several folks made that I could not agree more about is if you don't understand the business aspect of it, you won't have a seat at the table. And when you don't have a seat at the table, that part is passing you by. What's unfortunate about that is it robs you of your opportunity to practice the way you want to and sort of negate all that training that you spent such a great deal of time on in the first place. Learning from some of the greatest business minds in both academic and non-academic arthroplasty gave me some great insight and allowed me to make some connections with some people that I know will help me build that business aspect of my practice in the long run. Great line I remember from that meeting. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Twitter, A Schwartz 45 is your handle, and I encourage all of my listeners to give you a follow. If you're trying to identify an obscure implant, you're the guy. I've I always thought I was pretty good at that. People send me pictures all the time, but you take it up a whole nother level. You saved my bacon on a knee that turned out to be an Asculap Columbus. I'm like, where did that come from? When did that become such a passion of yours? Well, <laughs> I'm glad to help you and I'm glad to help anybody that I can. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's funny. I don't, I don't really know when it started. I do have a, tend to have a pretty good uh, visual spatial memory. I guess it really started when we first got locked down for COVID and I was sitting in my room 23 hours a day wondering what to do with myself. And the truth is, I do not idle very well at all. I like to be doing something. Around that time, I remember there was an app, an iPhone app that had come out called Implant ID, where you could take a picture and it would tell you what it was, what the implant was. It didn't seem to work very well. And I looked at the library and I thought, wow, that's a pretty complete implant library. I wonder if I could do better. And so I started aggregating old new domestic and foreign implants into my own library. That thing has grown and grown and grown and become about 1,300 unique implants at this point and hopefully continuing to grow. I don't know why I did it. I guess just for fun to pass the time, but it's kind of given me a unique opportunity to help people figure out just what implant the patient has in their body because it really does shock me how frequently folks come to uh, for a revision surgery or for a painful total joint and just can't seem to remember who, when, and where their surgery happened. It often becomes a bit of a a puzzle of trying to put together what exactly is on the inside. I know it can be very helpful. It's a great opportunity for me to help people. You got pretty excited the other day when I sent you a picture of not an SROM, but a UNIROM. And I just had to ask, what is the coolest implant you've ever seen? I will tell you, as you think about it, I always thought that Zimmer Epic Peak Composite Stem was one of the coolest designs I ever saw. What about you? That's a great one. I mean, there are so many unique designs. And I really enjoyed hearing the discussion about the Epic in your interview. With Dr. Crowninshield, great concept and love the mind for innovation. When I think about cool implant, an active project comes to mind. Patient is just now having the original John Insall total condylar knee revised. Wow. I mean, I was totally surprised to be staring at a clinic x-ray in 2022 of the original modern knee replacement. To make things even cooler, the patient has a long, fully porous revision stem like we were talking about before, that extends distal enough to peek through from above on the knee x-ray, leaving absolutely no (laughs) room 
for revisionista. So we're putting together plans to create a custom distal femoral replacement with a proximal sleeve to cement the long porous cylindrical stem into in order to create a unitized total femur. Because I think the massive stress rise in that, in that long, weakened bone would be absolutely catastrophic for someone who's actually a fairly young patient. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to make something like this and, and hope that uh, we can give this guy a good outcome. And I want to see how it goes in the long run. It really is amazing if you think about it. Uh, just let's talk about the insole knee just for a second. Aside from the occasional patella clunk with that design, we're talking no e-poly, no navigation, no robotic. The instruments were so rudimentary compared to what we have now. And how many of those are still out there? It's crazy. Yeah, it, it, it's just absolutely fascinating. And, the, and the, the patient just has absolutely no idea how unique it is to have had a knee put in in, in the 70s. In the 70s. And to still be walking around with two of them. I, I tell him time and again that we, we wish some of our current implants would have that sort of survivorship, let alone uh, implants with a fraction of technology, like you said. Well, Dr. Schwartz, for people like us that love to identify these mystery implants, it's getting a little tricky, isn't it? Because it seems like everybody has a Karai, a taper lock clone on the market, and now we've got Actus with everybody following suit on that design. It's making it a little bit more challenging if you don't have a great view of the cup, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I hope that in the long run, you know, my implant library can be a sort of source for some of this new artificial intelligence technology that's starting to come out. I don't know that we're there yet because it takes a lot of different x-rays of the same implant to teach the computer to differentiate when the similarities are, as you mentioned, increasingly similar. Well, I hope at some point it only takes one because there's a, there's a limit to how many x-rays that can be had. Uh, but right now it, it, is a, it is a total challenge and it's sort of like a mystery. You got to piece together time and surgeon and patient and location uh, to try to come up with an answer of, of what's what. I don't understand why it's 2022 and it's still a mystery. Why has no company just laser etched this information in some type of radiopaque fashion on the implants? I mean, it seems easy in my mind, at least, to take a titanium tibia tray and etch the name of the company in cobalt chrome on that front containment rail so you can see it on x-ray. I, I don't get it. I don't know why they haven't done it. I have no earthly idea. I think it could be done. Uh, but in the meantime, the mystery gives folks like you and I opportunity to sniff out some unknowns for the for the folks they're doing us a service exactly i guess so. sort of like that <laughs> noble effort there dr schwartz as that knee and hip atlas that we've been working with for so many years it kind of feels like the dewey decimal system at the library there's got to be a digital solution and i'm so glad you're working on that. Well, let's talk about publications for a minute you've been part of over 50 peer reviewed journal articles already congratulations on that and one that caught my eye was the cost of getting in. Is it time for change in the adult reconstruction fellowship application process? Sounds interesting. Tell us about it. Oh, that's a funny one. I, I, I always laugh about that one. <laughs> uh, so I, I interviewed for fellowship at the end of 2019 and the, and the uh, beginning of 2020. And I remember after my last fellowship interview, my co-resident at MI, who was my roommate at the time, uh, who's now a fellow up at the Mayo Clinic, and then Jake Wilson, great guy, talented surgeon. We were chuckling saying how much of a pain the fellowship interview season was and how, how much money we had put into it. So we said, I wonder if others would agree with us <laughs> and if they'd be in favor of a virtual process. And we thought, of course they would. And, and I would say there was some mixed input 
from our survey. But the funny thing is, a month later, COVID happened. It's been virtual mostly ever since. So it really took the uh, the idea and, and launched it into uh, execution right away because right. we had no choice but to stay safe. I thought that was a, a funny aspect that it really didn't matter what, what our respondents thought because it happened. With humidity down here on the Gulf Coast, it is essentially 150 degrees these days, sir. Everybody complains about the weather, yet nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. I saw a paper you were involved in, The Effect of Season and Weather on Orthopedic Trauma. Consult volume is significantly correlated with daily weather. Walk us through the five-day forecast through the eyes of a traumatologist. Well, that's another funny one, another another one that we, we uh, sort of had a, a laugh about. Anecdotally, we'd say when you wanted to have fun, you looked for good weather. And when you wanted to have a good day on call, you wanted the crappiest weather. Uh, when you're driving into the hospital, you were hoping for horrible torrential rain or lightning or snowstorm because we thought, well, on those days, people stayed inside. But we actually wanted to see if that were statistically true. And it, it turns out it was in the summer months, more people got hurt and they got hurt more severely than in the winter. There's something about really nice weather that makes people want to do some crazy stuff. It, it seems to hold true for those summer months in, in Atlanta, at least. So me telling my kids as they were growing up, stay inside, play video games, embrace a sedentary lifestyle. I was actually helping them, right? You were totally helping them and you were keeping them out of the emergency department with some sort of just unheard of injury. Father of the year. Projections of revision hip and knee arthroplasty in the United States to 2030. I saw that one. Where are we going? Well, that was one of my favorite projects, mostly because it was my first time presenting on the, on the podium at AUKUS. And if you want to talk about a little bit of stage fright, that is a really tough stage with about what six, 7,000 folks watching you just months before you're applying for fellowship. And it was just such a great opportunity. I, I just have uh, so much love for, for AUKUS and, and want to uh, get involved as early as I can in my career. And that was a, a project that I got to, basically a statistical modeling project, looking at you know how much more surgery we're doing now than we did in years past, and how that inherently correlates to the number of revisions we're still going to be doing despite the improvement in technology and technique. We're still gonna be doing a lot of revisions. Lo and behold, more primary surgery equals more, more revisions. And it's gonna be a lot. You know, I'm excited someone interested in that to be uh, darting practice at this time. Well, as a box opener, Dr. Schwartz, I can tell you the boxes we open for these revision cases are pretty expensive once we get off that whole cap code landscape. My question moving forward is, are these really money losers for the hospital? Does that even need to be in your mind doing one of these cases in the OR? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a tough one because the cost of care in the operating room and there afterwards is basically as high as you can get for medicine. I want to be the end of the road for the toughest arthroplasty cases, which is why I was so intent on joining an academic practice. The truth be told is, and in, in, in practices like that, the bottom lines are probably not as strongly emphasized as they are in the private setting. Uh, with that said, a big goal of mine as I enter practice is to be financially lean. I want to have the lowest surgical costs within the confines of good outcomes. Obviously, the healthcare horizons are actively changing and have changed substantially, and high-cost surgeons are going to become dinosaurs, whether they're in private practice, hospital-employed, or in academic practice. And while I'll never spare costs when it comes to using what the patient absolutely needs, I've learned from mentors like Bill Geronic here at Duke about the importance of considering costs when making surgical decisions. If we cannot be consistently financially efficient, we will not be able to survive in the modern healthcare ecosystem and not be able to do the thing that we love to do 
and take care of patients who absolutely need our help. Well, you brought up academic practices. Let's move on to your next phase of your life. I was known for a lot of things, corn, pork, utterly unpredictable weather. I understand you're heading there to set up shop. I am moving to Iowa City to start practice at University of Iowa, which is really just exciting for me. You know, the interview trail was was great and got to meet a lot of neat practices and, and great folks doing good work for people in their communities. But I think when it comes to the words history, orthopedics and arthroplasty, University of Iowa sticks out as a place that has been entrenched in every step of that. I'm really excited to get the ball rolling in Iowa City. A Depew rep friend of mine many years ago was wearing a lapel pin of an AML stem. I pointed to it and I said, you are never getting that thing off your jacket. And he got the joke. He said, that's the point. You don't want it to get loose. I said, touche. Well, the AML survivorship is no joke. That stem has done very well over the years. I noticed that Dr. Callahan is certainly a big part of its success. And he recently received a distinguished contributions to orthopedic Award and has just done incredible work there in the Hawkeye State for decades. It's got to be a real honor to work in a group associated with just an incredible body of work, right? It really is. And I've spoken to Dr. Callahan a fair amount in, in uh, making this decision to head to the University of Iowa. But when you look at the benchmark that Dr. Callahan, Clark, Johnston group of, of arthroplasty forefathers set at Iowa, it's hard not to want to do as, as well as I can because they excelled in every aspect of their practice. They were incredible surgeons who took care of patients, and we still see them back with you know, 40, 45-year-old total joints that are doing pretty well still. Uh, because they did such a great job. But not only did they do a great job in the operating room, but they took care of patients the right way in the hospital and did a really good job studying them and changing the practice of orthopedics. And that leads to a great group of folks there now and Dr. Noizu and Dr. Elkins and soon to be myself that hopefully will not only just uphold the standards that those three set and many others as well, but hopefully exceed them and continue to drive the practice of arthroplasty through uh, the Miami of the Midwest, Iowa City. What do you see your practice as being over the next five to 10 years, if you could map it out? Well, that's a good question. Uh, that's a tough question. Like I said, I don't like to idle. So number one, I don't want to be sitting on my hands. Uh, I want to get busy you know, as soon as I can, but I want it to be busy within the confines of being able to take care of patients the right way. And that means doing a, a good breath of primary arthroplasty that helps me sleep at night, but also welcoming some of the toughest cases that folks hopefully locally and maybe even all throughout the Midwest and the United States would prefer to send to someone that wants to do these tough cases. And I hope that's me. I sort of want to be the the stopgap for the the mayhem. And then at the end of all that, it's not just about the surgery, it's about taking care of patients in the in the office space and then aggregating them in a meaningful way, studying them elegantly and presenting them to the arthroplastic community. And it's certainly very naive of me to say at this stage of my career that anyone will ever care what I have to say. But I do hope someday that those goals come together to bring people back from the bathroom when I get to the podium. At some point, I will be a, a driver of practice and arthroplasty the way many before me, some of my role models and some of my mentors have done uh, for years. Can you do me a favor? Please. When you meet the staff in the OR there, just tell them at Duke, <laughs> you're used to fresh cut flowers and only blue names <laughs> in your dressing room. And everyone greeted you with a salute and that you expect that same type of reception, uh, just so not to throw you off, you know, to keep that rhythm. <laughs> I'm sure that will go over very well, and uh, everyone will love me immediately, and I'll be 
have my name put up in the annals of Iowa immediately if I do well, that. Well, Dr. Schwartz, if I had you around a table with students just coming into their orthopedic residency, let's talk to your younger you. What advice would you give them? That's a really good question. And I think when it comes to advice, I want to be a different voice than the ones that get repeated over and over and echo. So I'll try to give what I hope are unique perspectives. So I, I get asked all the time, well, what is the best residency? And if there was a best residency, everyone would want to go to that residency. The truth is there is no best residency. There's the best residency for you. And I think that's about being honest about what you want in a residency, because at the end of the day, it's exactly five years of training. And if you want to do a ton of X, X that X could be trauma or spine, then you might want to go to residency A. And if you want to do a just a tremendous amount of lab research, you might go to residency B. If you want to do a just high volume of all cases, you might go to residency C. So uh, I would be very realistic with yourself about what you want out of a residency as you begin the process of, of seeking it out. You know, the next thing I'd say is, have hobbies that you like to talk about uh, beyond medicine. And these should be things that you're really passionate about. Don't fake it. But I cannot tell you how many people I've interviewed for residency and for fellowship who either consciously or subconsciously think I want to hear about their research efforts. And I'm, I'm probably guilty of this too. When I interview 10 people in a day and all 10 of them talk about the research, it does become somewhat bland. And I, I can tell you that the most memorable conversations I've had and people applying for whatever it is they're applying for or some, something that is just different and it is totally outside the hospital or something that makes me want to ask you more about it and tell me, and I want you to kind of hear about how you became interested and uh, what are these unique aspects And I've heard of about sailing and uh, all kinds of just really cool things and brewing beer. Um, I, I just, you know, it, it's fun to learn about something new in those settings and it's really memorable. And, and lastly, I would say, remember that the people who are mentoring you didn't get there on their own and they got there on the backs of mentors as well. And so you need to pay it forward and be a good mentor to somebody else in the long haul too. You can't just take and never give. So that would be, I think, the three tenets I would I'd preach to uh, people coming up through orthopedics because it's a very special field. It's a great way to make a living. And I think that's the way to pay it back to the community. What about fellows? Any advice specific to them? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The things that I try to maintain in myself, I guess is what I'd say, are uh, humility, enthusiasm, and, and malleability. It's tempting to get better and better and better, and, and which is part of training, is to improve. You want to stay humble because the minute you think that you're very good, you will be humbled. Um, and if you stay humble, it doesn't hurt quite so bad. I think that Dunning-Kruger effect, the, the, the more you know, the less you know, it really plays a role here. Enthusiasm is great. You, you want to have fun doing this job because when you stop having fun doing it, it affects everybody around you. It affects your performance. And if you just keep loving it, uh, I think you'll uh, find yourself, find easier to drive into the hospital every day and continue to work hard. And, and the last is malleability. You come to a fellowship with five years of training and like mine, you're probably really grateful and feel like you had a good backbone of arthroplasty and orthopedics across the board. Uh, but if you stay malleable, it will allow you to continue to learn. You want to be flexible. You want to. You, you don't want to close off new ideas just because you've seen something work before. That doesn't mean forget your principles or forget where you came from, but take each new learning environment as an opportunity to further grow your own way 
through all the ways you've been exposed to. And lastly, it's tempting, and I'm guilty of this too, to have a bad work-life balance. Always make time for your friends and family. It is easy to always just be on call or always have some research project that holds you back from doing something, but you only get one family and one core group of friends, and uh, you never want to leave them behind. You know what? I've talked to a lot of surgeons recently about the parallel universe between surgeons and reps. That humility, enthusiasm, and malleability, I mean, that's just as directed at us about what can make us better at what we do. I know a lot of reps that call on Duke, some of the best of the best in the industry. What advice would you give them? I think it's probably the the points that I made about humility, enthusiasm, and malleability or flexibility can apply to everything. But working with surgeons, I've done it for the last six years as a trainee. It's hard. There's some big egos and, and a lot of experience and a lot of personalities that are totally unique. It's hard to toe the line between you know being friendly and being overcomfortable. But I think the ways to endear yourself, at least from my eyes, is it's quite simple to, to keep the patient as the guiding, the northern light, the guiding star. When that's everyone's mindset, you can't lose. That's an overarching statement for having everything available and if possible, being three steps ahead of everybody else in the operating room. Parts no one ever even thought they would need until the moment they need them are available and, and doing so in a way that sort of almost seems like you're not even there at all. You want to be present and having conversations and be pleasure, you know, it'd be, it'd be making jokes and, and having fun, but nobody wants any single person in the operating room to be the center of attention or be sort of a know-it-all. So I think that those same principles can be applied to each of our lives and, and probably each of our jobs and make things much better. Well, Dr. Schwartz, I'm so excited about your career move here. Wish you the best on your implant library. And I just know my audience and myself are going to be hearing your name more and more over the coming years. Great work thus far, sir. I wish you great success. And thank you for coming on the show to share your life with us. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I mean, it's an absolute honor to be on here and talking to you. And I look Look forward to working with you in the future and to listening to your, the way your podcast develops over time. Well, Dr. Schwartz, before we close the door on this conversation, sir, I was wondering if you could do Device Nation the honor of introducing our next guest. I understand you two might know each other. After just finishing my adult recon fellowship at Duke, I do feel uniquely honored to introduce my mentor, fellowship director, and friend, Dr. Mike Bolognese, or simply Bola. <laughs> Thanks, Schwartz. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> Because of the sheer uniqueness of everyone in the world, it seems inevitable that we'll all have people that we jive with and those that we don't. That's not the case for you, Bolo. Universally loved by anyone and everyone, uh, be they patient, poly, friend, or even random passerby. Uh, you epitomize <laughs> the concept of gifted surgeon, healthy clinician, fervent mentor, undying supporter, strong leader, and of course, old friend. Oh. That said, I look forward to hearing from the man himself. Oh my gosh. Thanks, Schwartz, man. I, I've uh, I've been introduced a couple of times, and uh, that's got to be right up on top for one that's appreciated and heartfelt. Thanks, man. No, it's good. I, You know, great year with you, man. I, I'm uh, excited about what you did with us, and, uh, you know, that's why we're in this space, right? You know, trying to, uh, you know, make sure that we keep this profession going, and you can carry the torch, man. It's, it's a little bit of an uphill road we have ahead of us, but folks like you are going to make sure we do it the right way. So, man, really enjoyed our time. I look forward to the rest of the time we'll spend together as colleagues, man. Uh, you uh, you laid the groundwork and I, uh, you set a high bar for me to follow. <laughs> Too kind.
How's that for cliffhanger? Well, huge thank you to Dr. Andy Schwartz for providing just an incredible part one to this two-part series. I know he is going to be successful in whatever he puts his hands to and so appreciative for those inspiring words. Let's tie this all up in a nice, neat power chord. We talked about reverb before. What's the opposite? It's called a dry signal, which sounds like this. Now let's throw some blue sky reverb on the same thing. Technically, that's a wet signal, but that gets just a little too close to that diabolical word moist for my taste. Whether we like it or not, a lot of the decisions and actions we make on a daily basis in and out of the hospital have reverb. They echo in the lives of those around us, friends, family, HCPs. They don't just stop like a dry signal does. It can be good reverb or it can be bad right? Well, he mentioned humility, enthusiasm, and malleability. Great advice bullet points to fellows. I submit those are great advice bullet points to us. If you can just get those three interdigitated, nice ortho-friendly word there, into your coming and going this week, you are well on your way, my friend, to becoming that living, breathing blue sky pedal, creating positive reflections all around that last long after you submitted that charge sheet and left the hospital. Thank you again, Dr. Schwartz. Wish you great success in Iowa City to the reps up there that represent what he uses already. Isn't it great when two men in a truck bring business your way? Well, stay tuned. Bring in a five-pound mallet your way. Part two, an uplifting conversation with Dr. Michael Bolognese. Thank you so much to the most incredible audience in the world and hope you all have a great week.